0: It's a little bit like a fairy tale. You know, she goes into the forest and is just wide-eyed and doesn't realize, in fact, that she's part of the darkness.
1: This is the AMC Mayfair Witches podcast. And I'm your host, Amy Nicholson, writer, critic, podcast host, and witch in training. And our training is almost complete because today we have reached the penultimate episode of AMC's Mayfair Witches, episode seven titled Tessa. I really need to form a circle with you all, because all hell is breaking loose in the Mayfair clan. Thankfully, I am joined by Madison Wolf, who plays Tessa Mayfair for a much-needed emergency debrief. And later in the episode, I will also be joined by Michelle Ashford, the co-creator of this entire series, to break down everything that happens in this episode. But please, for the sake of your soul, if you have not yet watched episode seven, go watch that first, because we are about to spill some gasoline on these secrets. And someone is going to light
0: a match. Today, we have a chance to get real, solid proof of witchcraft. An actual witch on video, nobody's ever caught that. And if we get it, no more hiding in the shadows. We will take this movement to the
2: next level.
1: In Episode 7, the Mayfair line is in jeopardy. Weirdo incel freaks have kidnapped the Mayfair's new head witch, Tessa, and they are literally keeping her in a cage. Tessa tries to use her glamour powers to convince her captors to set her free. That doesn't work. She tries to use Lasher to set her free. He doesn't show up. He's not with Rowan. He's not with Tessa. He's in ancient Scotland, trying once more to trap his love triangle rival in a nether world made of his own memories. Well, Lasher just loves trapping Cyprian places and not killing him. But there is hope, 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 I don't know, for the future, because Rowan discovers that she is pregnant. It seems like we have an answer to our question from a few weeks ago. If Rowan and Cyprian bone down in a bizarro alternate time loop created by a demon, have they actually boned down? Turns out, yes. But little does Rowan know that this is all part of a grander plan. Uncle Cortland is in cahoots with the head of the Talamasca, you know, the guy who wears the silly bow tie. And they want Rowan to fulfill an ancient prophecy. And to fulfill that ancient prophecy, she might, because Rowan barges into the incel hideout, mental neurons snapping, guns blazing like it's a freaking Western, and she just drops these goofs like nothing. But before she can rescue Tessa from being set on fire, the dorkiest, most loserish woman hater shoots Tessa dead. Rowan is enraged. We are talking vengeance in her eyes, necklace in hand, guttural scream. It is time to fulfill an ancient prophecy, folks. Later in the episode, we will get into all of this with the co-creator of the whole series, Michelle Ashford. But first, we need to grieve for our fallen Mayfair sister with Madison Wolfe, who plays none other than poor Tessa. Hello. Hi, Amy. Artessa is here. You had a whole episode named after you, mm-hmm. and for it, you only had to die.
2: I know. <laughs> I know. It's a love hate relationship with my character's arc, you know?
1: <clears throat> when did you know that you would collapse and fall to your brutal, brutal, bloody, sad
2: death? <laughs> Not till like episode five or six. Oh, And wow. then I got sent the script for episode seven, and one of our producers was like, you know, did you see episode seven? Did you read it? And I was like, yeah, I did. And she was like, I'm (laughs) so sorry. We just had to kill Tessa.
1: I was like, but why? Like, why? oh my God, take me to this moment. You're paging through episode 7 like, oh, Tessa. Oh, cool. Mm-hmm, I'm now the mm-hmm. designee.
2: Everything's going to go great. Oh, this episode's named Tessa. Wow. It's all mm. wonderful. And then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and you know, it gets so good. Like it gets so intense. I'm reading and I'm like, yes, yes, I'm loving this. It's like an actor's dream. I have this great scene with Alex who plays Rowan. First of all, she rescues me from the fire, right? So I read that. And I'm like, whew okay, cool. I'm in the clear. Thank God. <laughs> and then all of a sudden- Tesla is shot dead. Yeah. It was like a real shot to my heart. I mean, I know I get shot in the neck, but <laughs> it really caught me and caught me by surprise because I've actually never died on screen. So I was like kind of excited <laughs> in a weird way. Wait, what is it like to die on screen? Well, filming it was actually quite challenging. I mean, obviously to just- go to a place like that emotionally and have it feel as raw and vulnerable as possible, it's challenging. It takes a lot of energy and almost trick yourself that you're actually in that situation and that you're actually... On your deathbed is kind of a—it messes with your head a little bit, for sure.
1: Yeah, I'm fascinated to hear what it was like filming that final scene for you, because Rowan's there, there's all this action and fire, there's all these moving pieces. Mm -hmm. What was the energy like in the room that day?
2: That whole sequence in the warehouse was over, like, two or three days of shooting. And, you know, it's summertime in Louisiana. We filmed in New Orleans. It's so hot they can't turn air condition on for sound when we're actually rolling. So it's like so, so hot in this warehouse where all the actors are like doing a bunch of physical activity. And then just like having Alex be there in that same mindset, like trying to save me. And she's just phenomenal getting to act opposite her and bounce off of her energy. It was definitely really intense. I mean, This is going to sound like such a superficial question, but throughout this
1: episode, I kept looking at you and thinking, her mascara is so perfectly smudged. And I was like, how do you get mascara that tear stained and smudged? Do they like do you all up and then they tell you sad stories about dogs running away or something?
2: (laughs) Well, part of it is my amazing makeup artist, Mickey. She did at the top of the day, do my makeup in a way that was kind of runny and like messed up on purpose, I guess. But yeah, being in that environment and kind of screaming and crying all day for like a couple days in a row, it kind of gets that way naturally too. Like I was (laughs) crying for like 12 hours. So it just kind of ended up that way, I guess, (laughs) which worked for camera. (laughs) I was thinking part of
1: what I think is so fun about adapting this book is the way they've modernized it. Like part of how the Mayfair family tries to find you is they form a group chat, you know, online group chats, which is the most powerful tool. (laughs) But also the whole reason that Tessa is in this mess in the first place is because of all of the Mayfair clan. She is the most chronically
2: online. Of course. And now that you say that, that's a really interesting point. I had never really thought about it that way. But yeah, basically she seeks out these guys on the internet because she thinks that she can, like, tackle this by herself. It all comes from social media.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah. And also it comes from the fact that the rest of the family isn't taking you seriously. So you feel like you have to do it on your own, that you have to advocate for what you Mm -hmm. think is right. And I was thinking for you, Madison, like, you've been making movies since you were in elementary school. I imagine that you relate to Tessa as a younger person in a community of older people having to advocate for yourself in front of, you know, directors, actors who are four times your age. Mm -hmm. Did you ever have this experience in the past as a child actor on set?
2: Yeah, certainly. I do feel that in certain situations, I did have to kind of prove myself more than like an adult maybe would have to because, you know, everyone's thinking this is a kid. How could she possibly really know what she's doing? Or how could she possibly understand the material enough to, like, make informed acting decisions? And, like, I really felt like I did. Like, even at a young age, like, I felt like I really, really could look at material and get a grip on it, you know? So, yeah, I did feel like sometimes I would have to advocate for myself. And I think so many young girls and young people in general can kind of relate to that, you know?
1: Definitely. That is so true. I I know that I can relate to that. Mm -hmm. And Tessa has to advocate for herself in this episode to try to save her own life. Mm -hmm. And she does that through this balance of flirtation and fear. Mm -hmm. Let's listen to a minute of it. What's wrong with your face?
2: Your hands. Anyone can see that. I can see it. I can see you holding me. So, so we can, can be, be closer, closer together. together.
1: Tell me where that comes from as an actor.
2: Hmm. You know, I can't really say that I've played a character quite like Tessa. It was a little bit of new territory for me. I mean, her flirting and her charm, that's her power. And when someone, when anyone gets into these life-threatening situations, your flight or fight automatically kicks in. And to Tessa, that flirting is her fight. That's what she does. That's what she knows how to do. So that's her simply knowing in the back of her head, like, if there's any chance I'm getting out of this, like, this is what I have to do. This is what I have to try. So that's just her trying to survive.
1: I mean, it's fascinating because Tessa seems to downplay having The power of glamour, which, by the way, I'm like, is it the power of glamour? Do you say having the power to glamour, (laughs) having glamour? But she seems to downplay it to Rowan. But last episode, we asked our guests what power would they want of all the Mayfair witch powers. And they all wanted glamour. Yeah. And you're the actor who got to use it, who got (laughs) to turn on the glamour.
2: It definitely makes Tessa a really empowering character for me. Like the fact that she's able to kind of just be like, yeah, I can flirt. I'm cute and I know it type thing. (laughs) It's like
1: kind of cool. That's true. I can imagine the show giving you an excuse to be like, all right, I will think of myself this way. I will embody this. (laughs) And now if you want to in the future, you can turn it on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) (laughs) I'm truly heartbroken that we have lost your character of Tessa so soon. You know, let's grieve Tessa together. Okay. Let's give her a eulogy. I'll begin. Okay. Tessa, I will miss Your big smile. I will miss your big blonde hair. I will miss the fact that you, out of all the witches, felt like the witch I could really be friends with. Tessa, I felt like you brought joy and bubbly yellow shirt-wearing energy into this series. Tessa, you will be missed.
2: That was really good. Thank you so much. Now for me. Dearest Tessa, you surely will be missed... And your tear-streaked mascara will never die. Amen. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like we had a moment. We did. Oh, Madison, thank you so much for being here. Of course, thank you so much. It was so much fun. Your modern witchy joy will be missed.
1: (laughs) Oh, Madison... What a shining light, just like Tessa. I am sad that we have lost her so soon. It is just not fair. Lasher, I blame you. If you had come to her rescue earlier, we could still have some Tessa. Instead, you are off having a dick-measuring competition with Cyprian. But don't worry, my coven members. We have so much more to discuss. And we have just the person to interrogate. Michelle Ashford, co-creator of the series, a.k.a. the person who is actually responsible for Tessa's
0: death. Here we go. Michelle Ashford, hello. It's lovely to have you here. Oh, thank you, Amy. It's a delight to be here. Tell us who you are and what you do for the show. My name is Michelle Ashford. I am the co-creator and executive producer of Mayfair Witches, and I am really happy to be here today to talk about all things witchy.
1: Michelle, we are here to talk about an episode called Tessa, in which... You kill the character of <laughs> Tessa. <laughs> At least we named it right. At least you gave her that honor. Exactly. We went very hard on your co-creator, Estes Balding, for killing off Deirdre in episode two, but uh. now y'all are killing off Tessa in episode seven. I have to say, what vendetta do you writers have against the Mayfair women? You are worse for them than Lasher.
0: (laughs) Yes. I was thinking that as I rewatched it. And I thought, ooh, it looks like we're mad at our witches. Uh, It's funny. Episode 7 comes at a time where the destiny of Rowan and Lasher is really ramping up. For Rowan to embrace the power she is so frantically sort of running away from, she won't do it for her own benefit. It has to be in the service of someone else, given who she is as a healer and a doctor and someone who takes care of others. And so when it's Tessa who she's trying to save and that goes wrong, that's when Rowan decides, I am going to fulfill my witchy destiny.
1: I mean, I can get that argument intellectually because you're right. You're right. That idea of needing to save somebody else, that pushing her to release the power that she has. But it was so heartbreaking to watch, too, because I felt like Tessa was this.
0: Symbol of what the future of witches could be. She felt really hopeful. She felt really modern. Yes, she, and she was. And she, exactly, she was very modern. But, you know, the notion of Rowan not taking responsibility for who she is and what her role is here, it was her kind of running away that led to this. So it's a cautionary tale for Rowan, which is about being a leader. And if you don't take that position when it's presented and essentially, you're expected to take it. If you don't take it, you have to be very careful about what that means to everybody around you. What you're
1: saying feels so fitting because as a co-creator of the show, you are one of the leaders of this series. But what made you want to step into that role for this series? Did you have a relationship with Anne Rice and her books before this?
0: Yes, very much so, and I did meet Anne Rice many years ago, and that was its own kind of crazy odyssey. But oh, wait, I think I'm going to need to hear. Oh, that oh, I will absolutely tell you. It was <laughs> I, in an odd way. I felt this whole project that came a little bit full circle because 20 years ago or so, I was working at Sony, and they said Anne Rice wants to develop an original TV series. We think you'd be great for it. Will you fly to New Orleans and meet with her? And I did, and it was one of the most extraordinary 18 hours I have ever had in my life. And I met her at that house on First Street. She was living there.
1: The one, the
0: inspirational house. The house. (gasps) So she was living there. She was writing those books there. And that's where I met her. And we sat on a sun porch. And then all these years later, this came my way and I thought, oh my God, I sat in that house with Ann Rice and it was an extraordinary, and that was just the beginning. That was in the early afternoon. She then took me on a tour of New Orleans in her long black stretch limo and we went to all the properties that she owned in the city. And one of them was an abandoned orphanage and she had bought it and she had taken the orphanage and converted it into a dollhouse because all that was in there were all her dolls. She had a massive thousands and thousands of dolls she had collected over the years. So you would walk in and dolls would be sitting around tables or they'd be sitting in front of the fire, reading a book. It was one of the most incredible days I've ever spent.
1: Did you get the sense that Anne herself walked around adjusting them, putting teacups in front of their hands?
0: Yep. Putting their hats on? I think they felt very, very real to her. Here was the amazing thing about Anne and this enormous body of work it came from a very, very deep and very, very real place for her. She was wrestling with very, very big questions. And, you know, some people would go to a shrink, and Rice decided to really embrace all her questions and grief by attending to these characters. And that includes all the stuff in her books, but also these dolls. And it was fascinating.
1: When you are driving through New Orleans in a black stretch limo that is Anne Rice's, is that like being on a parade of one? I'm imagining people Recognizing the limbo and being like, there's the Rice Limo.
0: There it goes. There it goes. Well, you know, she's quite a fixture in that community. And I don't know if people were looking at the limbo kind of pointing at it. But I do know after we saw the dollhouse and other places that she owned, we then went to Commander's Palace, one of the oldest, most famous restaurants in the Garden District. And it was like being with a rock star. I mean, we were ushered in to her table. Everything was just set for her. She also drank tab nonstop. Wait,
1: tab? You mean... The low-calorie soda tab in the bright blue can from the 80s? Yes. Wait, that's incredible.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And there was a leather-bound little like ice cooler that if you looked at it, you thought, oh, are the crown jewels in there? But no, it was tab. And her driver carried this thing of tab with him everywhere, including into Commander's Palace. When we sat down, he opened the leather case, and out came a tab with the popping of the top, and there we were. And but all of this was prearranged. Everyone knew that she was coming. It was, it was like being with a rock star.
1: A, I'm imagining her being like a vampire, but for tab, (laughs) if she doesn't have her (laughs) precious liquid, it was like that. It was like that. Couldn't
0: go anywhere without it.
1: Well, and B, She writes these characters who are like rock stars. Did she like wearing the rock star kind of label? Was she like, yeah, I deserve all this?
0: Well, you know, I think by that (laughs) time she had just become so famous and her books had just, you know, taken off to such a level. She just, yeah, she thought this is my life now. And she wasn't wrong.
1: Well, I feel like you and Esther have done a really amazing job at adapting Anne Rice's work here, you know, making changes that still feel in the spirit of her writing. I want to come back to this episode because one of those big changes is the character of Tessa. Yes, our very blonde witch. Yes, and she's a very different type of witch in the world of the Mayfair. Right, she kind of looks more like a best friend. She's in jeans. She's in a yellow T-shirt.
0: Right, she seems so non-witchy, yeah, doesn't she? And then we love that. It was first of all, it's a way of just showing innocence. You know, she was not a designee, and this is what's really. You know, we've talked about this about other things. we talked about in the in the context of Carlotta. You know, Carlotta has insinuated herself into the very center of all this drama. And we've speculated at times, was Carlotta, was she sort of jealous because she was never the chosen? And so, yes, when this notion of Rowan pulling back from her responsibilities when she starts to feel like, I don't want to do this, I don't want to assume this... It leaves an innocence in the path. And yes, Tessa is exactly that. You're right. She doesn't seem like a witch. She's really not the designated witch. This was not her role. She, she got forced into something that was not right for her.
1: I want to play a little bit of what you do to Innocence in this episode, where we have (laughs) Tessa in a cage. And I want to say between Tessa and Suzanne Mayfair, cage acting is really becoming a skill set for the women (laughs) who get cast on this show. Tessa has been kidnapped, blindfolded, and then because of her power that she has, the glamour, her way out she's trying with her powers is to try to seduce her captor. Right. Let's listen to a little bit of this.
2: You have no idea my boss she's all over me all the time, but but I've been in the business a lot longer than her. But guess who makes twice as much money? And guess who's always leaving early for a date? Don't you go on dates? Nobody wants to swipe right on this face.
1: This character of Keith is the worst. He's not only... (laughs) A witch hater. He's like the lowest witch hater on the totem pole. He's this vile, craven dork. Can you tell me one nice thing about the actor himself so I don't just hate this face forever?
0: Yes, he's brilliant and he's lovely and he this is complete acting. He's a good person and he's a great actor because you really believe he's the worst of the worst. You know, it's funny about this whole notion of cages as you brought up. Suzanne's in a cage, now Tessa's in a cage. This goes back to the whole origins of where Esther and I got really interested in this idea, because when we read Mayfair Witches the first time, we thought, wow, why is that lead character a doctor? That is so odd. And as we did the research, of course, we started to learn the real history of witches, which was they were healers for millennia. And what happened was, at some point, the patriarchy, particularly the church run by men, got very, very threatened by this because it looked like women seemed to hold the keys to life and death. They could heal people, but then people would die. And they found it incredibly threatening. So this notion that Suzanne would be in a cage is perfect for when Suzanne lived, and now Tessa is, again, the victim of the same kind of patriarchal, paranoid misogyny that is still, in fact, alive today, unfortunately.
1: Well, that kernel of truth in here, that women having the useful skill of learning how to heal becomes a downfall. Right. Right. That almost feels like it has a neat parallel to glamour, to the power that Tessa has, because if anything, glamour just seems like an extreme version of a skill that women also have
0: to learn, Yeah, how to disarm scary men with kindness. Exactly. Women have a tendency to try to placate, to appeal to men's egos, anything to make themselves seem not threatening, because that is a way of getting yourself out of a life and death situation as many, many women know. If you can appeal and soothe the beast, you won't be the victim of the beast. And so, yeah, as much as it's painful to watch a woman in that situation, what you do see is a dynamic that has been playing out for many hundreds of years about how women try and navigate these very difficult situations with men.
1: Yeah, it really hit home for me because... I'm not much of a healer. I can't tell the difference between aspirin and ibuprofen and when I should use which one. This even drives my (laughs) boyfriend crazy. But I do definitely feel in this scene that feeling that Tessa has. Like I've been in that situation. How can you flirt to get your way out of something you don't want to be in? How can you be kind? Can you bat your eyes enough to get yourself to a safe place? I imagine a lot of people watching the show felt that connection when they saw this scene. I imagine you felt maybe a connection writing it.
0: Yes, very much so. And you always have to ask yourself are you contributing the problem by showing something like that? Or are you actually acknowledging the reality that many, many women out there will recognize and feel very deeply and go, oh, right. This whole thing of these witch hunters, you know, that came about when we were talking about how. There were groups out there that started to demonize women like Hillary Clinton and Kamala Harris. You know, those women who have power are honestly very quickly sort of labeled as bitches, but also witches. We thought, well, gosh, this is not far from what is actually happening right now. Right. It, even in the props that you use in this
1: episode, it was making me think about our current political landscape.
0: Yeah, Like Tessa is threatened
1: by Charlottesville-esque tiki torches. Or you really went there and yeah. you said, yes, this is political.
0: Yes. And this is happening. And this rage is very real and it's out there and it's scary.
1: So how did you cast these two types of anti-witch bros? Because I feel like you have two. You have the Keith who's sort of this... Beta, alt-right, witch hunter, bro. But then you have the kind of head boss, the guy that Keith wants to be. right? And they seem like two different flavors of witch hater.
0: Well, yeah, it actually goes back even to the pilot where we got very excited about the character of Lemley, you know, this... Silicon Valley genius dude. And that notion of really polished, successful men who simply believes that the world is his to do with what he wants. And those guys are also everywhere. One of the things that comes up a lot when you start reading about them is they're really, really into longevity research. They really are actually spending a lot of their billions on finding something that will allow them to live forever. It's almost laughable that their egos are that big that they feel like they should be the ones that don't actually have to go through the same process as the rest of us and actually die. So this kind of virulence against women comes in many, many forms. It's obvious and ugly, and it's super smooth and polished, but it's still there. What are these guys hoping will happen if they do get proof of a witch? Like, what is their end game? So that's a really good question because they obviously want to be validated. People want to prove that that is true, to say, "Look at, my version of the world is right." And these things that I've been saying are true, and these people are truly evil. They want their worldview to be validated because, The real world for these people is not working for them, and so they want these stories to be true. Just as a production detail, by the way, in these scenes, you really let these bros be sweaty. (laughs) You are sweating them down. They are covered in
1: sweat in these scenes.
0: Yeah, I know. (laughs) (laughs) Indulging ourselves. But... When you go out in the world and you start looking at this stuff, I mean, part of it just seems cartoonish. But the way you write this story isn't cartoonish at all. There's a lot of nuance in it.
1: We have to talk about the scene that Tessa has with the woman who's there, the woman who wants to set her on fire, the woman who seems to believe that it doesn't matter if the Mayfair bloodline is actually witchcraft. What matters is that the Mayfair bloodline is profiting off of the working class. And she makes a pretty decent case, which I think we should listen to right now.
2: My family, we're not, we're not witches, but we do have money. And if you help me, I can help you, woman to woman. You, uh, you know what this place is? Mayfair Auto Parts.
1: Glenn and me spent 17 years here putting car parts into cardboard. Then you shut us down. Outsourced our jobs. Woke up one morning. Didn't have a paycheck. Didn't have health
2: insurance. Our daughter Jenny was at your hospital halfway through her chemotherapy. I'm so sorry, but that wasn't me. It was your family. You profited off it. So woman to woman, you are on your own.
1: I mean, Michelle, really, who is the victim here?
0: That is exactly the question, and I love that you call that nuance because, in fact, Tessa, for her innocence, is not really aware that she comes from a family that operates like this in the world, right? Because she's thinking, I'm young, this is my life, I don't really have to look at it. And this will, of course, play into Rowan, who down the road really does, as a grown-up, has to really look into what is real about what she comes from. And the Mayfairs, yes, are not taking care of the people in their community. And it's a little bit like a fairy tale. You know, she goes into the forest and is just wide-eyed and doesn't realize, in fact, that she's part of the darkness.
1: It's true. And I feel like you could spin this to say, well, the targeting of Tessa still feels a little misogynistic because why not just kidnap Cortland Mayfair? He seems to be the one who's kind of in charge of the family and the profits right now. And the structure of this family really feels fraught at this point. You know, here in this episode, everybody is on one level rallying together to try to find Tessa. But when Rowan says, here's what we need to do, one of the family members really pointedly says, who is this we? There is no we. So would you describe the Mayfair family even as a strong collective?
0: It's a very fractured family. There's different aspects of it. Some are deeply involved in the world of witchcraft. Some are just in the family businesses. It's all over the map. But what we wanted to show and we will continue to show is how complicated families are and how they're never all one thing. And this notion of Rowan trying to drop into it and take charge, it's not so easy. And so that's kind of where she is right now. She doesn't really know the lay of the land. It
1: feels really fitting then that this is the episode where I felt like I really noticed all of these portraits in the opening credits. People from the Mayfair family, people whose faces I don't even recognize, but they're
0: still haunting the story. Right. And that kind of goes to Tessa saying, well, I didn't do that. This isn't my family. It's like, yes, it is your family. And so I love those portraits on the wall because I feel like what it hints at is a very, very long and complicated story. And that's the kind of responsibility of anybody stepping into. A family and embodying it, you know, as a knowing family member, you got to find out what the stories are. You got to actually understand where you're from before you can go ahead. And that means digging through maybe some really difficult and hard to understand material.
1: And technically, at this moment, Tessa is the designee, right? Is the witch head of the family. She doesn't really get to come to fruition on that because of what cruel things you have in store for her. (laughs) But do you think that she would have been a good head of the family?
0: Well, maybe she could have. She's young. She could have grown into it. That would have been a great series, watching a girl that kind of young and innocent and growing into the person who could actually run this family. But in Anne's world, it's always about what is meant to be, what has been ordained, preordained. And... Tessa was really not part of that. And it's a little bit like, are things preordained? Do they have to be? Or can you break out of that? Yeah, because here it felt
1: like Tessa might get to be the designee, right. but she doesn't get her power because there are people sitting on the sidelines not helping her, not giving her the actual power. I mean, I'm thinking, of course, specifically of Lasher. She's calling out to him. He's leaving her in the cold. You're sort of spending this episode thinking. Where in the world is Lasher San Diego? Why won't he come and help Tessa in this cage? We do eventually find him hiding out in Suzanne's cabin, where he's killing time arguing with Cyprian. Let's listen.
2: She's pregnant. Then let me go to her. Take care of her. If I've served my purpose, why keep me here? I am no threat to you, right? She doesn't want you. She doesn't want to be
1: domesticated. Why would a lion want to be a house cat?
0: I would never do that to her. Of course you
1: would. <laughs> you already have. You want to control her power. You want to suppress her, her true desires. To conform to your basic human morality.
2: would you force your way into her head. Force her to commit to your will.
1: Now I enact her wishes, and she wishes
2: for power. If you're willing to give her power, it is only because her power will strengthen you. Of course it will. I am a part of her, just as she's a part of me. And in her hour of greatest need, it's me that she'll call for.
1: In the hour of Tessa's greatest need she's calling for him, he's not answering. Instead, we're leaving Tessa's storyline for a minute where she is in real peril to see Lasher and Cyprian kind of busy fighting over another woman, her unborn child, in an argument that kind of wreaked a little bit of fragile masculinity to me. I didn't know if that was your take on it.
0: Yes, it's a very astute observation because, of course, Lasher doesn't care about Tessa. And the reason he doesn't care is he has massive self-interest in what happens with Rowan. The trick with Lasher is you can never tell. Is he, in a weird way, an avatar for female power and owning your truth and all the things about women that have been suppressed. And is he the great liberator of that? Or is he actually just after something that's going to help himself? And so he's like a trickster this way. You don't know. But the fact that he doesn't care about somebody in real peril and is instead focused on Rowan means, huh, what's his real motive here? Right? And
1: his insistence, which we've heard a lot of times through the season, is, I'm part of you, Rowan. I'm just enacting your greatest desires. So if he's not helping Tessa, does that mean there's a part of Rowan that doesn't want Tessa to get saved?
0: Good question. And to be determined, when we started wrestling with this material, we thought, okay, what is Lasher really? And if you look at like Jungian psychology, he's essentially her shadow self. He's part of her. He is, in fact, part of her, but it's the part of her she is completely and utterly rejected because she doesn't want to ever see herself that way. And so he's getting more and more insistent, more and more visible, and it's a part of herself she's going to have to really look at. And that is, in fact, what sort of launches us into season two, which is if she's going to own the fact that she is this powerful, what is she going to do with it? And this came back to our original question, which is, as Patriarchies seem to wobble and teeter and kind of collapse around us. And if women are going to take a much more central role in how systems of power operate, will it be different from how men structure power relationships or will it be the same? Is the problem the gender of the person or is the problem power itself? Is it, in fact, just inherently corrupting? And it will do the same to women as it's done to men. So that seemed to us a really interesting question. So that's what we're going to pursue as Rowan actually has to grapple with this question.
1: Right. I mean, that almost sounds like the framework for the peril that Rowan is in now, that Mm -hmm. in this patriarchal structure, Cyprian's boss Courtland, they've been part of this giant conspiracy to bring Rowan to this place where she is today, like emotionally, physically, literally all of it. Right. They wanted to fulfill the prophecy the new right. era will begin. And it makes you wonder,
0: what is the price of Rowan's new power? Exactly. Is there such a thing as power that's destructive but righteous? And what's really interesting about power is quite often it starts off as, I'm just writing a wrong, right? And if I have to use force, then that's the only way to write this wrong. We're, in a weird way, asking a very similar question, like, what does a woman do when, in fact, she gets the keys to the kingdom?
1: Exactly. Like, that really comes to a head in the final scene in this show. Rowan coming into this warehouse, mental guns blazing.
0: Right.
2: Me don't want me when me time on me hit the fire.
1: Is this a scene that we should be cheering for? Like, I want to cheer, but also, hold on. Like, every hair on my arms is standing up. This does not feel comfortable. This does not feel like a cheering
0: scene. Right, and it it, it shouldn't. It, it, because the question is actually a very uncomfortable one, which is, we've imbued Rome as our sort of hero with qualities that we want to admire, and yet she's wrestling with something very, very dark.
1: I appreciate that this isn't a girl boss, yes, witch queen moment. Right. It's more of a maybe witch
0: thing. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, big maybe. (laughs) I love that. That's perfect.
1: Well, Michelle, before you leave, we're going to end with a little segment that we are calling Witch Fulfillment. where we ask what choice you would make if you had supernatural powers. In this episode, Rowan has an absolute rock star entrance into this warehouse. Right. And I'm wondering if you were in Rowan's situation, if you had the opportunity to bust into this warehouse and kill these witch hunters,
0: how would you feel? Oh, wow. Gosh. Mm -hmm. I'm just trying to think of how I would feel honestly if I walked into that situation and did that. I'm afraid I might feel Glad that I did it, which is scary. (laughs) You're scared of your inner witch? Yeah, a little. When you really ask yourself, what would you do? You go, oh, I would probably use that power to, you know, quote unquote, fix this wrong. And yet you've already then stepped over a line. Should I be scared of your inner witch? (laughs) I don't think my inner witch is going very far, so I don't think we have to worry. (laughs) (laughs) I'm really trapped in my mortality. (laughs) Well, Michelle, this has been
1: such a pleasure.
0: I really appreciate you letting me
1: hammer you with all sorts of questions, accuse you brutally of killing Tessa and getting to talk about uh, putting lots of sweat on men to make them look more vile. Thank you for all of
0: that. Oh, so fun, Amy. You're really, you're such a delight to talk to. Thank you.
1: Okay, so Michelle was just amazing. I suppose I can't stay mad at her for killing Tessa. I mean, if an ancient prophecy says Tessa has to die, who might argue with it? Wouldn't it be cool, actually, if Michelle was the head of the Mayfair family? Technically, she hung out with Anne Rice. She knows how to make this all happen. She should be the new designee. I think she would do great things with that power. And I have to admit, when she started talking about hanging out with Anne, all I wanted to ask was, what did you wear? Wait, what would you wear to hang out with Anne Rice? I think I want to throw that out there as a call-in question for next week's episode. Call in and tell me what you would wear to your date with Anne Rice. Leave a voicemail at 888-994-WTCH. That's 888 888- Nine nine four nine eight two four. 9824 Your fashion tips might even be included right here in future episodes of the podcast. Before we go, let's add a leaf to the cauldron with an unusual name. It's called White Man's Footprint, a.k.a. Plantago Major, and it is a powerful plant It is used for protection, for healing, and for getting rid of annoying insect bites. And the reason that I am choosing it is because it grows everywhere, even in sidewalks. And this powerful herb often gets mistaken for just a trifling weed. And in this episode, we learn that the Talamasca is just like this overgrown leaf, because they have their hands in everything that is going on with Rowan. And it is not all good. They seem to be up to some shady things, like orchestrating an ancient prophecy with Cortland Mayfair. That feels like the opposite of just watching, and I'm starting to not trust them one bit. You know, I would love to get on the phone with them and give them a piece of my mind. And you know what? We can. I found their direct phone number. You can see it in the first episode. It is printed clearly on the Talamasca business card that Rowan's birth mother has. That number is 504-457-8275. You know what? I'm going to give them a call right now to tell them to back off our little Rowan.
2: This is the New Orleans branch. We're
1: watching and we're always here. Next week is our final episode of the podcast. I really don't want this to end in part because I don't want to leave you, my coven members, but also... I'm very worried about what's going to happen to Rowan in next week's finale. We will be talking about the season finale titled What Rough Beast with the man that we have been waiting for all season, Jack Houston, who plays the mysterious, seductive, and all-powerful Lasher. I have so many questions for him, including about his hair care. Make sure to watch Mayfair Witches every Sunday night on AMC. Or stream it early on AMC+. For an extended 30-day free trial of AMC+, Plus. go to amcplus.com and use promo code MayfairPod. That's Mayfair P-O-D. Podcast episodes drop on Sunday nights after the show, so subscribe wherever you listen. And thank you for listening to the AMC Mayfair Witches podcast. This is an AMC Networks podcast produced in partnership with Pineapple Street Studios. Our executive producers at AMC Networks are Kevin Dreyfus, Celia Cunett, and Brian Swarth. Our executive producers at Pineapple are Gabrielle Lewis, Barry Finkel, Max Linsky, and Jenna Weiss-Berman. Our managing producer is Aaron Kelly. Our producer is Ben Goldberg. Ari Saperstein is our editor. Mixing and engineering by Hannes Brown. I am Amy Nicholson. Thank you again to Michelle Ashford and Madison Wolf for joining us.